Así como el sándalo tiene que quemarse para exhalar su perfume, así la heroica revolución boliviana tuvo que sufrir el hondo drama de los días 9, 10 y 11 de abril de 1952. 70 horas de furioso combate en que aullaron las ametralladoras y rugieron los cañones, dieron la ansiada libertad a los bolivianos. Estas ruinas son el resultado de la lucha, pero en cambio el pueblo realizó sus esperanzas. Kevin Young is an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. His book, Blood of the Earth, Resource Nationalism, Revolution and Empire in Bolivia, traces the history of Bolivian struggles over mineral and hydrocarbon resources, highlighting the complex legacies of Bolivia's 1952 revolution. Some of the questions that motivated his research and that he's going to discuss with us in this interview revolve around U.S. policy toward the Bolivian revolution vis-a-vis -vis the Guatemalan revolution that was taking place almost at the same time. While the U.S. sponsored a coup against the democratically elected president of Guatemala, Jacobo Arvenz, in 1954, the State Department offered assistance to the Bolivian revolutionaries to strengthen the more conservative elements of the government and to marginalize the more radicalized. His work also revolves around the various economic projects that party officials, political party leaders, activists, urban factory workers, university students, and mine workers proposed to address a question that was key for Bolivians in the 1950s, how to overcome economic dependency and underdevelopment. To make sense of these debates, Young uses the term resource nationalism which he will explain in detail in this interview. So, Kevin, can you talk about the main contributions of your work? Sure. So my book really centers around the 1952 revolution in, in Bolivia. And this is uh, a revolution which is relatively neglected uh, in comparison with, say, the Cuban revolution or the Nicaraguan revolution or the Mexican. Uh, and that's part of the reason that the draw that the Bolivian revolution initially held for me when I started studying it 15 years ago or so, you know, this is a relatively uh, overlooked piece of Latin American history and a major piece of, of Latin American history. Uh, as you know, it had huge agrarian reform that took place. They nationalized the tin mines, the major industry at, at that point in the, in the country. Um, And so this was a, a monumental event. And even in Bolivia, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't receive as much attention today as uh, one might expect. Uh, so that piqued my curiosity uh, about the 52 revolution. And I started to read more about it. And then I started to dig into some of the archival resources, uh, started looking at uh, United States policy toward the Bolivian revolution. And uh, my interest uh, expanded and expanded to new topics. And one of the things that really drew my attention was the force of Bolivian social movements uh, in 1952, but also before and after that year. The mine workers being the most uh, famous and, and the most studied sector of the labor force in Bolivia, but also peasants in the countryside, uh, students in, uh, in the cities, factory workers and other urban working class sectors as well. 
middle-class intellectuals uh, who would form uh, much of the basis for the MNR party in the 1940s and 50s. I was also fascinated by the role that the United States played uh, because uh, in contrast with what the United States was doing in Guatemala in 1954, sponsoring a coup against a, uh, an elected government, in Bolivia, in response to the 52 revolution, the U.S. took uh, a different approach. Uh, it had largely the same goal of containing revolutionary mobilization and de-radicalizing what was happening in Bolivia. But it did so through different means. So the U.S. actually gave aid to uh, the MNR regime that came to power in 52. And it gave that aid in the hope of steering the revolution along a moderate and pro-capitalist course uh, in order to sideline uh, some of the leftist elements in the country that at that point in time held a lot of influence. Uh, both within the MNR party and to the left of the MNR party. It's a significant uh, socialist left, uh, Trotskyists, Stalinists, anarchists, although anarchists were uh, in, in decline by the early 50s, certainly. Um, so these are some of the factors that, that drew my interest to the revolution initially. And I was especially interested in the role of economic debates and economic visions. That is to say, how could Bolivia and Bolivians overcome this historic predicament that the country faced? You know, it's very common to hear uh, in Bolivia this uh, uh, metaphor of the country and of the people in the country as beggars sitting upon a pot of gold. Was, this country was extremely rich in natural resources, minerals, uh, oil, natural gas, uh, agricultural potential. Um, and, and yet the country was so poor. And how could we explain this and what can we do about it? Uh, and that question was very much front and center in Bolivians' minds in the middle of the 20th century. So that's the, um, that's the big focus of uh, my work is looking at those debates about what course of action the government should take in order to overcome this tremendous historical problem of what used to be called anyways, economic underdevelopment. So what to do with Bolivia's natural resources. So my book looks a lot at uh, some of the different players in, in Bolivia, not just party leaders and politicians, but also at the participation of urban factory workers, university students, tin miners, uh, peasants to some extent, um, in these economic debates that were happening at the time about how Bolivia could overcome this problem of poverty, economic underdevelopment, and not only industrialize its economy, meaning to get Bolivia off this historic track that it was on, where it was dependent on raw material exports like tin and oil, and start to produce more manufactured or processed goods, uh, but also how Bolivia could diversify beyond just one or two major export products like tin, because it was widely recognized at the time that that was a major problem for any economy, not just Bolivia's. So the book is really, that's the central theme of the book, is looking at those economic conflicts, debates, both in the halls of government and on the streets uh, in Bolivian cities and towns, uh, the way that different social movements, popular sectors included, 
mobilized in support of particular economic visions for the country. So to write a book or when you were writing the book, you came up with this term resource nationalism. And I would like if you can expand this term and unpack this term for us, why this term is so essential to understand your book. Resource nationalism isn't a term that I coined, uh, but I do think it's useful for um, understanding Bolivia in the 20th century and still today. In the most basic sense, resource nationalism refers to the idea, the belief that the natural resources of a country, the economic wealth of a country, should be used for the benefit of the nation, you know, the people in that nation. Uh, so in mid 20th century Bolivia, this was a very radical idea. Historically, the country's natural resources had been used for the benefit of foreigners, foreign elites, the Spanish empire, later Britain, and especially in the 20th century, the United States and its, and its investors. So resource nationalism as, as an idea begins to uh, gain hold in the country's politics in the early 20th century. Uh, the 1910s and 1920s, we can see political leaders as well as labor unions in various sectors, socialists, beginning to talk about reclaiming the country's natural resources for the people. Uh, so the, the platform of resource nationalization uh, started to gain popularity uh, with regard to the mines, uh, and then a little bit later, the country's oil resources as well. And after the Chaco War with Paraguay in the early 1930s, that's when uh, resource nationalism really crystallizes as a centerpiece of the country's politics, where you have people from all different sectors of society coming together around a resource nationalist political program, including but not limited to the nationalization of natural resource deposits. Resource nationalism, I think, is a little broader than simply nationalization. It can include a number of other things as well. Anything that is any sort of policy on the part of the government that is meant to uh, capture the benefits of uh, economic extraction uh, for the people of the country. So we could think about, say, taxation on foreign companies or, or even on domestic companies as being a form of resource nationalism, if the taxes are then spent uh, for the benefit of the nation, right? But nationalization is really the centerpiece of, uh, of resource nationalism. Now, it's a vague concept, it's a vague term, and I think that the vagueness of the concept of resource nationalism is, uh, is really key to understanding the historical trajectory of the concept, because the very vagueness of it actually served certain purposes in certain sectors in society over others. Uh, what do I mean by vagueness? Well, resource nationalism simply says that the people of the nation should benefit from resource extraction. Uh, but which people? Which people are going to benefit? Which people in Bolivia? Is it going to be peasants? Is it going to be the working class? Is it going to be the middle class? Is it going to be uh, the small Bolivian capitalist class? So those questions often went sort of unanswered or at least glossed over uh, in debates about natural resource, natural resource use. 
so that's one of the things that really um, uh, caught my interest about the concept is precisely its vagueness. You know, who's going to be benefiting? Who's going to be making the decisions about natural resource use uh, and consumption? To what ends, to what purposes uh, is the resulting wealth going to be put? What is it going to be spent on? And what about conservation, resource conservation? Uh, what about uh, the, the possibility of foregoing uh, some of the extraction of, say, oil or other uh, ecologically harmful uh, substances. So there are all of these debates and crucial issues which then emerge, uh, which the political discourse in the mid-20th century tended to obscure. Now, that's not to say that no one in Bolivia was thinking about these questions. There was quite active contestation within the ranks of resource nationalists in Bolivia over the form that resource nationalism would take. Many people on the Bolivian left, for instance, insisted that uh, the revolution of 1952 should not only nationalize resources, but it should also put the, uh, the resources to the benefit of uh, the Bolivian working class and the Bolivian peasantry first and foremost. Um, so the popular sectors of Bolivia. On the other hand, you had more conservative resource nationalists, including many military officers at the time, in fact, who had a much more conservative vision of revolution that would entail perhaps nationalization of the tin mines, but not much else uh, in the form of redistribution of uh, wealth or power. So basically there, the vision of the more conservative uh, voices was to essentially preserve the class structure of Bolivia and the existing distribution of resources within the nation while nationalizing some of the, the natural resources that had previously gone to benefit uh, foreigners. So it's a, it's a vague and it's a slippery concept, this resource nationalism. And that's, that's really what most interests me about it. And uh, these are still very live issues today. They're still uh, at the center of uh, Bolivian politics and, and economic policy today. And, you know, if we look at Bolivia over the last several decades, many of these issues have not really been resolved. Uh, these issues about the distribution of wealth and power within the country, how are nationalized resource sectors going to be governed? Uh, are they going to be governed by government officials? Are they going to be governed in a more democratic, participatory way? And is the country simply going to harvest all of the resources it can, or is it going to limit resource extraction in the interest of ecological sustainability? Uh, and of course, with the climate emergency, this becomes even more pressing, uh, far more pressing as a political debate than it was in the mid-20th century. So there's a lot of debate about this today in Bolivia, uh, especially with regard to natural gas exports uh, and, and oil, but also minerals, also large-scale agriculture in the country. Uh, all of these activities uh, have uh, harmful ecological impacts. But on the other hand, there's a powerful argument that resource nationalists today continue to make that Bolivia needs to use these resources. It needs to harvest and, and sell these resources in order to uh, reduce poverty and promote economic development in the country. 
So these, these are very conflictual issues in Bolivia still today, but resource nationalism as a set of beliefs about natural resource use continues to be central to the country's political culture today. So that's, again, one of the things that has really fascinated me is this long-term uh, persistence of resource nationalism within the country's uh, political culture, political debates. So what I was going to ask you is to what degree this term could be also used for other contexts? Because I think you know, it kind of it kind of reminds me to Peru, and it reminds me, of course, to other processes. Yeah, I think this is a, a very widespread phenomenon around the world, especially perhaps in Latin America. The Mexican Revolution, uh, another famous example of resource nationalism, among other concepts that were central to the Mexican Revolution. But the Mexican uh, Constitution of 1917, uh, Article. Uh, 27 provided for the state to nationalize natural resources. And that's one of the things that influenced people in Bolivia. They were looking to Mexico as one model uh, for how the country could develop in the aftermath of the 52 revolution. Mexico nationalized its oil uh, in 1938, actually a year after Bolivia nationalized uh, oil in 1937. Bolivia is the less, the less well-known example, uh, but it actually preceded the, the Mexican oil nationalization. There are you know, other countries in Latin America, we could mention Venezuela as another place where you know, this incredible oil wealth and uh, in the mid 20th century, uh, mid to late 20th century, there was a tremendous pressure uh, for the government to nationalize the oil, which it eventually did in the 1970s. Uh, and then to, uh, there was a lot of debate about how that oil was going to be used, uh, just as there was in Bolivia. And there were a lot of people arguing that the country should uh, sow the oil, as it was said. So plow the oil wealth back into industrial development uh, so that Venezuela can diversify uh, beyond oil. Uh, and of course, uh, it's, it's had very limited success in doing so still today. Venezuela is unfortunately still overwhelmingly dependent on oil exports. If we look across the world in the mid to late 20th century, there were numerous countries that took action to nationalize their oil reserves and uh, to some extent other resources as well. And it was all based on this notion that uh, the country should uh, benefit from natural resource wealth. Uh, not foreign investors, not foreign companies. And just as in Bolivia, though, I mean, a lot of the, the resource nationalists in these other countries were themselves elites. Uh, some of them were capitalists. Uh, many of them were very sympathetic to capitalism. Um, so they didn't necessarily wish to see a real redistribution of resources within the country. Um, so we can look at certain Middle Eastern states, Saudi Arabia, for instance, as, as an example here, which you know, the oil coming out of Saudi Arabia is, is controlled by a state-owned oil company, right? Saudi Arabia is uh, hardly a uh, model of democratic egalitarian development. So, and yet it has this, this you know, long-standing notion of, of resource nationalism, which is in some ways similar to the Bolivian version. 
so let me go back then to the question of oil because when the MNR took power in 1952, the promise of course, and the expectations were pretty much focused on mine nationalization. But you said that in the second half of the 20th century, Bolivia went somehow through, um, through a crusade to save the oil. So I would like to understand much better what was the policy of the MNR specifically about oil and how that policy changed after the, the fall of the MNR. Yeah, even before 1952, there was a sense among many Bolivians that the mining economy that had really been at the center of the export economy for you know, ever since the Spanish arrived, virtually, was in decline. That the tin coming from the mines was being exhausted. It's not going to continue to sustain the economy for much longer. So there was then a, an effort to look at other alternatives, uh, alternative resources and exports that could, to some extent, replace the, the decline of the mining economy. And from the really the 1920s onward, oil was considered to be a key prospect in that regard. The Chaco War, which I mentioned um, in the 30s, helped to elevate the importance of oil in the minds of uh, most Bolivians. And that's a complicated history in itself, but there was a widespread belief, which was factually a little flawed, but nonetheless sort of understandable how this belief came about out that the war was fought over oil. It's an oversimplified version of what actually happened. But coming out of the war against Paraguay, there was this new uh, commitment on the part of Bolivians from all across society to protect Bolivia's oil resources and to use those oil resources in the interest of economic development. So the MNR, which is founded uh, in the early 40s, Many of the intellectuals and middle-class leaders who formed the initial leadership of the party were very involved in this nationalist defense of the country's oil. So they uh, issued this manifesto uh, after the Chaco War, denouncing Standard Oil, the major uh, foreign oil company in the late 1930s, which had its properties nationalized in 1937, and vowing to, to, to defend the country's oil. So the MNR really drew a lot of it, its strength from resource nationalism, including around oil, also around the mines. Now, even though the MNR was a relatively conservative force among the ranks of Bolivian revolutionaries, the MNR nonetheless was able to capture much of the popular imagination in Bolivia uh, by appealing to this idea of oil nationalism and mineral nationalism. Now, when the MNR actually comes to power in 1952, it rather quickly steps back from or retreats from the oil nationalism. So at the same time that it is uh, nationalizing the tin mines in 1952, it's also uh, broadcasting to the United States that it's interested in promoting foreign private investment in the oil sector. So in 1953, the MNR leadership makes this clear to the U.S. They're very interested in, in courting the friendship and the aid of the United States. And part of the way that they did that was by promising what they called an open door in the oil economy. And that's the phrase that they often used. 1953 and then 
throughout the rest of the decade, this idea was communicated. Um, the United States, for its part, also insisted that the MNR pass a new uh, reform to the oil law in the country, which would facilitate new private investment in the sector. Even though the, the oil had been nationalized in 1937, one of the United States' key goals in the 50s was prying open that oil sector uh, for renewed capitalist investment from abroad, from US companies in particular. So uh, the MNR does that. It pursues the, the policy essentially that the United States wanted it to. It reforms the oil legislation in the mid 1950s. And there's this new influx of foreign private uh, oil companies, uh, Gulf oil being the most well-known by the 1960s. Gulf starts to produce large amounts of oil. And this also triggers a backlash from popular and middle-class sectors in Bolivia. Uh, by the late 1950s and early 1960s, this shift in the country's oil sector starts to galvanize a new nationalist coalition, which calls for uh, renationalization of the country's oil, uh, and soon thereafter, the country's natural gas, which uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, started to be harvested in large quantities and became a commercially viable industry in itself. So after the MNR liberalizes or opens up the oil and gas sector, that inspires this new round of, of popular resistance to its policies. And throughout the 1960s, much of the uh, political debate in the country centers again around oil and increasingly natural gas. And this, this debate is, is one, one key factor in shaping the political fortunes of MNR leaders and the, the fortunes of the military regimes that came after. Uh, in 1969, this uh, new uh, military regime led by General Ovando again nationalizes Gulf oil. And that's a response to this burgeoning popular demand uh, for oil nationalization. And you know, we could continue the, the narrative all the way up until the present. You know, Bolivia's oil and gas resources have been nationalized and denationalized a number of times since 1937. And it's, it's a reflection of the, the ongoing contestation among different uh, political forces in Bolivian society. I just wanted to add that it was very early on that Sergio Almaraz wrote that book up that basically was condemning MNR policy on oil, right? And it kind of the paradox of how could it be possible that the same government that nationalized the mines ended up privatizing the oil. It's uh, just very interesting to see this swing in terms of both nationalization and privatization. And I recall a historian, Rosanna Barragan, who, some, uh, who said once, it's, it's very interesting how Bolivians are very, they, they, we, we memorialize when nationalizations happen, but we tend to forget when privatizations happen. We, we are very good at, at 1937, 1952, but we don't know when, when that resource ended up in private hands again. Again, it's like a, a cycle that Bolivia has gone through various times, more times than most countries, actually. But, yeah, but Sergio Almaraz, uh, who you mentioned, is one of the first intellectuals in Bolivia in the late 1950s to condemn the MNR's oil policy. 
Uh, and that book that he published in 1958 actually had a, a significant impact in mobilizing Bolivian students and workers uh, in opposition to the, the MNR's oil policy. And it was also noticed with great concern by uh, the U.S. Embassy. Uh, the U.S. Embassy actually dissected the book and sent a whole report back to their bosses in Washington, you know, talking about how Almaraz is dangerous. He's also, you know, doesn't understand economics. And so interesting. <laughs> they, they saw the book as a threat. Your book also pays a lot of attention to urban workers. And one of the things that called my attention, it's uh, precisely this. I hope you can talk about this. Just to give some background to the listeners, I think historians have put a lot of attention to peasants and their role in the revolution. When talking about workers, they were talking primarily uh, about mine workers, but we have not paid that much attention to urban workers. And that's one of the things that your work does. So can you talk about the contributions in, in this section? Yeah, so it's true that urban workers in Bolivia have been neglected in comparison with the mine workers and the peasants. And to some extent that's understandable, Bolivia's industrial working class was relatively small, certainly much smaller than, say, Argentina's or you know, Mexico's or Chile's. And they certainly didn't play as central a political role uh, or as visible a political role as, say, the mine workers did. But they did play a politi- uh, an important role nonetheless. Uh, they were very active in the country's central labor confederation, uh, factory workers, that is. And what I'm trying to do with the chapter on factory workers in La Paz, though, is actually more than just recover the history of a neglected sector. What I'm really trying to do there is to show that the 1952 revolution did not simply succumb to the pressures of the United States. It did not simply fade away over time, that there were actually some persistent legacies of the 1952 revolution which are important to bear in mind. And to understand uh, why I make that argument, you need to be a little familiar with the the way that the 52 revolution has been talked about in the literature. In the 1950s, there was a lot of celebration of the MNR and the revolution, but by the late 50s, and certainly after that, by the the 1960s, there was much more skepticism, much more pessimism about the value or the authenticity of the 1952 revolution. Critics like Amaras, but also many others, including on the indigenous left, uh, began to look at the MNR as a conservative force in society that ultimately failed, ultimately failed to achieve the things that uh, it had promised to do. And of course, in 1964, you have the military uh, stepping in and overthrowing uh, Victor Paz Estensoro, the MNR leader, president. Um, so for a long time in, in Bolivia and outside the country, there, there was uh, a lot of almost disdain or, or pessimism about what the, the revolution had actually accomplished. And this is part of the reason why the revolution is relatively neglected in comparison with other Latin American revolutions. Much later on, though, there were people who came along and started to reevaluate the history of the revolution. And this is the, the tradition that... Um, Carmen, you find yourself in, reevaluating the process of the revolution itself and also its long-term legacies. So if we look at, say, agrarian reform, 
we look more closely at what was actually happening, we can see that the revolution was not simply this top-down process led by this relatively conservative middle-class party, which was trying to you know, restrain the radicalism of peasants in the countryside. Peasants and indigenous communities actually played a central role and a very proactive role in shaping the process of agrarian reform. So you can speak about that much, uh, much better than I can, but uh, to an extent that same process is replicated in other sectors of Bolivian society. We see that in the case of the urban working class, for example, in La Paz, where I uh, looked at it most, most closely, uh, urban workers were quite resistant to the political agenda that the MNR leadership, in conjunction with the United States government, was trying to impose. So they were very resistant to the rightward turn in the country's economic policy after the mid-1950s. And the factory workers in La Paz ended up becoming one of the centers of uh, political resistance and mobilization against the, the MNR's the MNR's abandonment of resource nationalism and also the uh, program of economic austerity that it began to implement in 1956. If we look at the level of popular consciousness as well, and we can get some clues about this from uh, the sources and the archives, if we look at the consciousness of the urban working class, we see that the very people in the MNR leadership and in the US government who were trying to promote, in their words, popular acceptance of private capital investment. And that was one of the, the chief goals of the United States at the time. We see, though, that the, the people implementing those policies or trying to implement those policies and trying to shift popular consciousness were remarkably unsuccessful at doing so. So if we look at the records in the U.S. National Archives, we see uh, constant complaints about the failure of that ideological mission that the United States was waging. Uh, and the factory workers in La Paz were one uh, center of that resistance, one sector in society that refused to buy into the, you know, the, the pro-capitalist ideology that the United States uh, and its MNR partners were selling. And urban workers, as well as mine workers, as well as peasants, number of other sectors, university students, for instance, actually did place some real constraints on what the government was able to do. Uh, so in looking at that, that case study of the urban factory workers in La Paz, uh, I'm trying to offer some, some insight into the extent to which the United States and the MNR were not actually able to do everything they wanted to do. Uh, and it was because of popular resistance and the popular political culture uh, of resource nationalism, of uh, egalitarianism that limited what the more conservative uh, forces in Bolivia were able to do. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. So one of the things that I want to do is to show our listeners and hopefully college students to give examples of how historians are using primary sources. And uh, you share with us Walter Guevara's economic plan. He was, of course, one of the main leaders of the MNR. So can you talk about this source and how did you use it in your book? Sure. So after the revolution came to power, Walter Guevara Arce was the Minister of Foreign Relations, and uh, he was the, the chief author of this uh, so-called Plan Inmediato, this 
plan for economic development in the country. So it was a book length document, full book, which was an outline of the MNR's economic development goals and the means that they planned to use to develop the economy. And it really represented one of the chief promises of the revolution, which was diversification and industrialization of the economy. So going back to one of the things I said earlier, by 1952, there was a recognition that the the mining economy was not going to deliver prosperity for very long into the future. They needed to find alternatives. So Guevara's plan highlighted several areas of the economy that he thought uh, were especially promising. Uh, One of them was agriculture. Um, So uh, he uh, promoted the idea of this march to the east, right? The the colonization of uh, the eastern lowlands, valleys in the central part of the country, but also the lowlands in Santa Cruz region and uh, nearby regions to take greater uh, advantage of Bolivia's uh, fertile lands and agricultural potential. And also with the hope that agricultural exports could one day uh, become a significant contributor to the Bolivian economy. Uh, Another uh, sector that Guevara Arce looked to was oil. Uh, So oil also uh, occupies a very important place in in this document. So in each of these sectors, Guevara Arce was advocating a policy of state intervention in the economy in order to promote these changes, these changes of industrialization and diversification. So Bolivia needed to develop more processing, new manufacturing in the country. It also needed to diversify away from just minerals, namely by expanding in agriculture and oil. So in that sense, Guevara Arce is really representative of a larger trend, not just in in Bolivia, but also in Latin America more broadly at the time, which goes by a variety of different names, uh, structuralism, economic developmentalism. And it was a rejection of the liberal version of capitalism that for so long guided policy in in most countries, at least up until the 1930s. But with the Great Depression, and then with events which are more specific to Bolivia, such as the Chaco War, the belief that the, the government needed to more actively intervene in the economy to promote economic development became very widespread. Uh, and this is an idea that the MNR leadership, people like Guevara Arce, appealed to. And so his plan, which is issued in officially in 1955, although it, the ideas had been uh, disseminated prior to then, identified this, this economic agenda and promoted the, the notion of state, uh, greater state involvement in the economy in the interest of economic development. Now, interestingly, Guevara Arce, as foreign relations minister, uh, was the chief author of the document, which is interesting because foreign relations ministers don't typically uh, attach their name to these economic plans. But I think it, it speaks to the, the way that the MNR was trying to attract the friendship of the United States. So Guevara Arce, as foreign relations representative, was very actively seeking to attract U.S. support. So it was especially important that the U.S. government see this document and know what the MNR was was hoping to achieve. Now, the document itself, although it it represents a rejection of the more 
radical form of free market capitalism. It's actually a relatively conservative document at the same time, because it's not talking about, you know, handing over industry to the workers. It's not talking about, you know, large scale redistribution of properties. You know, it doesn't say a whole lot about land redistribution, for instance. And that reflected the fact that the MNR and, and people like Walter Guevara Arce were relatively conservative. They were revolutionaries in a sense, but they were also more conservative than, than many Bolivian revolutionaries. And they were committed to reassuring the United States and foreign investors that we are essentially a capitalist economy. We want to attract private capital investment. Uh, yes, we nationalized the mines in 1952, but you can rest assured that we are not looking to nationalize the entire economy. We're not going to turn industry over to the workers. We don't want any of that. So you can trust us to be reliable partners in Bolivia and also to hold the left, to keep the left at bay, to keep the left, the socialist left, uh, from gaining power. And that's largely the way that the MNR was able to attract the support of the U.S., was by positioning itself as a bulwark against the radical left in the country, which had, again, substantial influence at the time. So the document is uh, simultaneously pretty ambitious in terms of its goals for economic development and relatively conservative uh, if we compare it with what the socialist left in the country was saying at the time. Socialist left shared some of the same ideas. They, you know, they agreed that the state should get involved in the economy to promote development, but the left was also advocating um, progressive redistribution of wealth within the country. They were also advocating uh, worker control over, over industry uh, and agrarian reform in the countryside and, and other things as well. You painted a very complex picture of the MNR. You talk about the success of the revolution, but you also gave us a lot of the background of why people is not very interested probably today in remembering the legacies of the revolution. So my last question is, what do you think are the legacies of this revolution that took place 70 years ago? Yeah, I, I think we, we need to analyze the question on uh, a few different levels. There's a material level, there's a policy level, uh, there's also a level of political culture and, and consciousness in the country. And in terms of policies, again, we've seen that with regard to natural resources, policy in the country has sort of gone back and forth over time, nationalization, privatization, nationalization again, reflecting this ongoing contestation over uh, different, you know, different visions for natural resource development. But the way that resource nationalism is so deeply rooted in the country's uh, uh, policy, but even more so in the political culture, the, the popular consciousness in the country, is largely traceable to the, the 52 revolution and the, the mobilization and, and popular uh, debate and pressure that preceded the revolution too. So I think that one of the, the strongest legacies of the revolution and, and events that surrounded it is exactly this, this culture of resource nationalism, you know, to the point where today no politician can 
hope to attain any level of credibility or legitimacy by promising to privatize all the country's natural resources. It's, it's not a winning political platform, and it hasn't been a winning political platform for a very long time. And that speaks to the, the level of popular consciousness in the country around uh, natural resources and how they should be used. Now, yes, different governments at various times have privatized or reprivatized the country's oil, but usually it's been done sort of under the cloak of this discourse of resource nationalism. They haven't openly shouted, we are going to privatize. Uh, it was usually under the cover of something else. Yeah. We are doing, we are privatizing in order to strengthen the National Oil Company, for instance, what was done in the 1990s. Capitalized, as they said. Capitalization, that was the, that was the term, right? So I really think that, that one of the deepest legacies of the mid-20th century is this political culture of resource nationalism. I think there are, there are other things that we could point to as well. We could look at the legacy in, in terms of land ownership in the countryside. But uh, in terms of my work, that's, that's the thing that most stood out to me. Kevin, thank you so much for coming to the program. I really appreciate your time. And I really hope listeners will go to your book and, and take the time to read your book. Thank you, Carmen. Thanks for the invitation. Tuvo que sufrir el hondo drama de los días 9, 10 y 11 de abril de 1952. 70 horas de furioso combate en que aullaron las ametralladoras y rugieron los cañones, dieron la ansiada libertad a los bolivianos. Estas ruinas son el resultado de la lucha, pero en cambio el pueblo realizó sus esperanzas.